Muhammad Ali is the greatest of all time, not just as a boxer, but as a documentary subject. If you're the greatest, you're just the greatest until proven wrong. I'm Tom Powers, and on this episode of Pure Nonfiction, I talked to Bill Siegel, who spent over 20 years planning his 2013 film, The Trials of Muhammad Ali. Unlike other filmmakers who covered Ali's boxing, Bill focused on Ali's battles outside the ring, over his conversion to Islam and his opposition to being drafted for the Vietnam War. His refusal to serve caused him to be banned from boxing for three years when he was at his prime. Before making the trials of Muhammad Ali, Bill collaborated with Sam Green to direct The Weather Underground about American radicals who bombed government buildings in the 1970s. The film was nominated for an Academy Award and deserves its own conversation another time. In making the trials of Muhammad Ali, Bill concentrated on interviewing people who had direct interaction with Ali, including his second wife, Khalila, his brother, Rahman, the minister, Louis Farrakhan, and New York Times sports writer, Robert Lipsight. Bill lives in Chicago, where he teamed up with the production company, Kartemquin Films, best known for hoop dreams, to produce trials. I interviewed Bill in a Chicago hotel room during the podcast movement conference that took place just a month after Ali's death. I asked, where did his interest in Ali begin? It came in waves. I mean, growing up as a kid in the early 70s, I, he was already fighting Superman in these giant-sized comic books. <laughs> and he was, you know, pretty unavoidable. Ali, at that when I first came on to him, he, I think, was already the most recognizable face on Earth. And, and the period that I ultimately came to to explore in the film had already happened. And, uh, you know, I was vaguely aware of that, but it was more Ali Frazier and then Zaire. And so I discovered him as a boxer purely uh, and was a big fan. And um, from a documentary standpoint, I didn't get into him until 1990. My first job in documentary out of grad school was on somebody else's uh, $6 million obscenely well-funded series called Muhammad Ali, The Whole Story. And I was a researcher, and my job was to go get them, immerse myself in this body of archival footage and literature and people and prepare background units for segment producers. And um, it was a dream job. I thought, wow, if this is documentary film, this is what I want to do. <laughs> and I watched these guys blow the six million bucks in a year and not make the film. And Never got made. It, it, well, the, so the, the money came from a Japanese publishing company, and when you know they spent it all, the, the company pulled the plug. It sat on mothballs for several years, and then they ultimately finished it. And it's out there on DVD, and it's, it's, you know, it's kind of like Ali 101. It really uses his fights as a, as a storyboard. And um, it was just another reason why I knew the film I wanted to make about Ali Beyond the Ring hadn't been made and needed to be made. Even that six-hour comprehensive series, I thought, treated this the Ali exile years pretty lightly. In the course of researching that film, you plunged yourself into as much Muhammad Ali footage that you could. Totally. I mean, it, they had everything. And this was before... ESPN Classic, so being able to see Ali's early fights in particular was really hard to do because of the, the they were all bottled up with rights issues, but they had all of them. So, you know, I got to see all of his fights, and that was, of course, a main attraction among everyone on staff there. 
But ultimately, I found myself in this other corner. Everyone was over in one place watching all the fights, and I kept watching him in a bow tie, a black suit on college campuses as a speaker representing the Nation of Islam and speaking out against the war. And it was an Ali that, that I really didn't know. It has been said that I have two alternatives, either go to jail or go to the army. But I would like to say that there is another alternative, and that alternative is justice. Between the fact that I was watching this company blow six million bucks and not be able to tell Muhammad Ali the whole story, that's what it was called, um, I, I thought, I just want to tell Muhammad Ali this part of the story. And it stayed with me. And I literally had a box of research materials that I carried around with me for you know well over a decade. I went on to make Weather Underground and did other stuff. And when I finally got back to it, you know, I knew it just had already stayed with me. I had a list of the footage that I wanted to go back and get. I knew I had a short list of people I wanted to interview. I had a pretty clear idea of, of how I wanted to tell the story. But then I teamed up with Kartemquin and particularly the, uh, my producer, Rachel, Rachel Pekelny and, and editor Aaron Wickenden brought in a whole, they were discovering the story like I had years earlier. Mm. And so watching them discover it and bring their own sensibility, Rachel brought in a bunch of footage that I had not seen before. You know, archives are always getting uncovered as years go by. CBS in particular, I remember back in the day in, in, in the 90s, I don't think, I think it was really, really hard to access anything from CBS. and and that had been digitized and, and brought to light by the time we got to it. So, you know, it was a combination at that point of knowing, having a clear idea of the story I wanted to tell, but being totally open to their discoveries, uh, both in terms of, of narrative and in, in discovering the footage. Before going deeper into trials, I asked Bill about earlier documentaries on Ali. One of my favorites is by William Klein, who grew up as a New York Jew during the Depression, but relocated to Paris after a stint in the army. Klein was an established photographer who also made films. In 1964, he got unusual access to the pivotal boxing match in Miami, where heavyweight champion Sonny Liston was a 7-to-1 favorite to beat the Louisville boxer Cassius Clay. In a major upset, Clay won. Later, he publicized his conversion to Islam and took the name Muhammad Ali. Klein got close to Ali, partly due to a chance meeting with Malcolm X on the plane to Miami. Here's Malcolm X, filmed by Klein. Uh, the, the power structure had successfully created uh, the image of the American Negro as someone with no confidence, no militancy. And uh, they had done this by giving him images of heroes that weren't truly militant or confident. And now here come Cassius. Uh, the exact contrast of everything that uh, was representative of the Negro image. He said he was the greatest. Uh, all of the odds were against him. He upset the odds makers. He won. He became victorious. He became the champ. And the uh, people who, are, who understand psychology and the, the effect that, uh, the psychological effect that the image of one's hero has upon the person himself, they knew that as soon as, uh, if people begin to identify with Cassius and the type of image he was creating, they were going to have trouble out of these Negroes because they'd have Negroes walking around the street saying, I'm the greatest. And also Negroes who were not saying that they were nonviolent or, and also Negroes who were proud of being black. They were, who would be, who would be proud of their own cultural background. All of these factors 
reflected the, the, the potential danger that was seen on the, by the press was reflected in their questioning of Cassius during this fight. It was not a heavyweight championship fight physically. There was more to it than that. And I, for one, knew he would win because I, 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 looked, I looked at all of the historic things that were taking place on this earth. And to me, time itself was on Cassius' side. After Ali's years of exile, in 1974, Klein filmed the famous Rumble in the Jungle in Zaire, where Ali fought George Foreman to reclaim the heavyweight champion title. Klein combined his footage, shot over 10 years, to create the film Muhammad Ali, The Greatest. It's dazzling for its distinctive camera work and jump cuts. I love that film. It's a masterpiece. It's beautiful to look at. I mean, I think Klein's artistic sensibility shines in that film. And it also kind of leapfrogs over the period that I ultimately went into in the whole story. But he gets this um, early Cassius Clay, even before he's Ali, beautiful black and white stuff. And he had access and I think a pretty profound understanding of the moment he was in, William Klein, because he, he just, you know, he seemed to be asking the right questions and be in the right place at the right time. In Klein's attention to the racial dynamics around Ali, he makes memorable portraits of the Louisville businessmen who were sponsoring their hometown fighter. I'm Gordon B. Davidson, attorney for the Louisville Sponsoring Group, owner of Cassius Clay and the hired hand to keep the group and Cassius Clay together. Louisville Sponsoring Group was 11 Louisville businessmen, kind of out of central casting, you know, um, bourbon, horses, tobacco, media, manufacturing. They really represented the power elite of of the city. And they, um, all-white group of businessmen, got behind hometown hero Cassius Clay, who was on the rise and becoming a professional boxer. He had won the Olympic gold medal. So, you know, he was already a hometown hero, really. And these guys wanted to make, boxing was a a notoriously mobbed up sport at that time. And they wanted to insulate Cassius Clay uh, from that and um, became his managing group. And, um, you know, it's easy to assume looking at those guys that they must have exploited the hell out of them but actually they treated them very fairly they'd never done this before i really don't think they were in it for the money but i also you know they were on the doorstep of history they thought they were going to be in complete control of this kid and drive him where they wanted him to go not knowing who he was going to become you know join the nation of islam become muhammad ali refused to go to vietnam and incredibly that happened right at the moment when the contract ran out so you know some of the guys definitely didn't want to go on any further the nation of islam wanted to take over ali's contract and they they management and they did and that's kind of where they came in and out. So in William Klein's film, he has this incredible shot where I think all 11 guys are lined up. I don't know if it's nighttime or where it's shot, but there's really harsh lighting. So like half their faces are lit and half their faces are in shadow. And he moves from face to face and he has each one of them say who they are. And It looks kind of film noir. And yeah, just the sound of their voices. They just go one by one. And I, you know, I gotta believe they didn't know what they looked like, you know, in that scene. They're just introducing themselves. And that's, again, it's Klein's 
mastery of of aesthetic that really makes that shot the combination of his aesthetic and just who these guys are is is one of my favorite scenes in documentary period of all time william klein wasn't the only filmmaker at the 1974 rumble in the jungle leon gast also captured ali and zaire but due to problems with financial backers gast couldn't use his footage until years later when he completed When We Were Kings, that won the Academy Award in 1996. Uh, my impression of that film starts with my friendship with Leon, who I met on the $6 million project that I call the Titanic. He was one of the segment editors. He brought, he was the last guy in. They had, you know, we were, <laughs> we were well on our way to sinking, and it was already apparent to me, even as a first-time documentary guy, <laughs> what, a, what a clown fest it was. And then in comes this, you know, another guy, you know, with all this footage from Zaire. What's going to happen now? But because this, this is before when we were kings, right, is, right. has come out. He had shot all the footage, you know, with several camera crews. He, he was hired by I think Don King to shoot the music part of what was happening in Zaire. He wasn't down there to film the fight initially. You know, he had I think three camera crews down there. And then when Foreman got hurt and the fight was was it Foreman that got hurt? Right. Then the fight was delayed. Yes. Um, they stayed. And um, it became a, a, a totally different project. So from 1974 to when you encounter him in 1990, he's just been sitting on this yep, project. Yep, noodling with it, I think. I don't really know how much he was working on it. But he got to work on it in this, you know, he, he immediately, it became apparent to me, he was the most serious filmmaker of anybody on that staff. And so I would just hang around in his little hole and watch him work and talk to him. And he's such a lovely guy. And when that project went down, you know, all that footage was Leon. So he pulled his chunk out and then, you know, had real momentum. And um, at some point hooked up with Taylor Hackford and they did the updated interviews with Spike Lee and George Plimpton and Norman Mailer and so forth. And that became When We Were King. So, you know, having a, a pretty much a ringside seat to watching how that film ultimately came together was an education for me all by itself. And so I know how hard he worked on it. He's a model to me of how a project can stay with you for decades and through relentlessness and determination, uh, you know, a lot of hard work, get it done. And to me, it's, it's the best documentary and Ali ever made. It's a masterpiece. At the time when Ali was banned from his sport that lasted from 1967 to 1970, the boxing enthusiast Jim Jacobs made a film called a.k.a. Cassius Clay, in which Ali analyzes his past fights. I don't know how the film came about, but it's happening while Ali is in exile. So it's one of the things I love about it is that it's in that moment where all their their opinions on what's going to happen is speculation and conjecture. Nobody knows. And I think that's the thing that, that, that um, was most important to me in ter- as a filmmaker because history can mess with your mind in the sense of making it easy to look back and think how heroic Ali is now for the stand he took then. But when you're in the moment going forward, your judgments are, are I think, more important because you don't know how it's going to turn out. And that's what that, that film is in the middle of. And so I love it for that for that reason. It's got some, some great footage and it's kind of corny at times or some antics, but... Um, it helped me always keep in mind as much as possible trying to remember the present tense when making a, ultimately a film that's looking back. After his exile from boxing, Ali fought Joe Frazier at Madison Square Garden in 1971, 
captured by director William Greaves in a documentary called The Fight. It's the first Ali Frazier fight, and he had his own sound. And I love that film because of the way the fight sounds. It's unimpeded by announcers and and all that. It's just the raw sound of the fight itself. And I've never really understood how brutal and hard boxing is as much as I did from watching that film. But it's a boxing film, ultimately. And um, so is When We Were Kings, for the most part. It it kind of nods toward Ali's exile years and, and... the meaning of that fight, but doesn't go into it in depth, and neither does the William Klein film. It really leapfrogs over that period. The closest really is the AKA Cassius Clay, but because there's no outcome at that point, that that's missing, missing it too, plus it didn't get much exposure. Um, so I knew there was a film, again, from working on Muhammad Ali, the whole story that people I felt were missing, which which was an in-depth exploration of what to me is the most controversial, um, and in many regards, important period of his life when he's growing outside the ring to become much of the figure that I hope he's remembered to be uh, for all time, which is much, much more than a boxer. So you keep using this expression, the exile years. For people who don't know Ali's career, what do you mean by the exile years? Right. The exile years was the term given to explain the fact that when Ali... Um, in 1967, refused to be inducted into the U.S. military. He was banned from boxing by boxing authorities who also stripped him of his heavyweight title. The U.S. government convicted him of draft evasion, sentenced him to five years in prison, uh, fined him $10,000, took away his passport. So he could not box within the country because boxing authorities wouldn't grant him a license and he couldn't leave the country. So it's ironic, the exile term because he was in exile within his home country, um, not able to earn a living doing what he was best at. And so he was forced to make a, you know, he was young and had young kids. He was just starting a family. He had to find a way to make a living and he did it becoming a college speaker. We'll be back in a minute as Bill Siegel talks about making the trials of Muhammad Ali and also describes attending Ali's funeral last month. But first, a word from our sponsor. Pure Nonfiction is sponsored by Sundance Now Doc Club. Discover hundreds of documentary films selected by head curator Tom Powers. Now you can watch The Trials of Muhammad Ali by Oscar-nominated director Bill Siegel. The film looks at Ali's toughest battle when he was sentenced to prison for refusing military service in Vietnam. You can watch Sundance Now Doc Club on your TV, computer, or mobile device. Go to docclub.com to sign up for a free trial. In The Trials of Muhammad Ali, director Bill Siegel opens the film with a British television talk show in 1968 during Ali's exile from boxing. In a London studio, the host introduces Ali who's beamed in on a TV screen from Chicago. Thank you. Welcome to the show. Thank you for allowing me to come to you live by early bird satellite. Now, let me just get a few facts straight with you. You're a professional fighter, right? I am a minister of the religion of Islam, also. A professional fighter and a minister as well. Yes, sir. David Suskind would like to ask you some questions. David? Well, I don't know where to begin. I find nothing amusing or interesting or 
tolerable about this man. He's a disgrace to his country, his race, and what he laughingly describes as his profession. He is a convicted felon in the United States. He has been found guilty. He is out on bail. He will inevitably go to prison, as well he should. He's a simplistic fool and a pawn. For me, most importantly, if the film's working, it ends up being a film that's at least as much about us and the evolution in our response to Ali as it is about Ali. Because once Ali took the stand and refused to go, he never wavered from that. You know, he didn't apologize. He didn't end up going. He didn't leave the country. He stood still on that principle. And what changed was our response to him. And that's really what the beginning of the film is meant to lay out is in, you know, a punch in the, hopefully a punch in the face fashion, the villain Ali of David Susskind excoriating him, you know, when Ali's in exile, literally trapped inside this black and white television. And Susskind has the safety of being in London on a couch and he can rip into Ali and Ali can't get anywhere near him. And then George Bush, former President George Bush, ultimately giving Ali the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which the highest civilian honor in the land. How did that happen? And that's really what the film is about. You interview Ali's second wife, who was married to him during this period of, of the exile years. We know Ali from other accounts as a ladies' man. He had four wives. He had nine kids, including two out of wedlock. I haven't seen that much attention paid to the women in his life, but Khalila Camacho Ali, his second wife, who you interview, is a really vibrant character and seems to have had a pretty important influence on his life at that time. Can can you talk about that? I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to make the film at all, and a big part of that is meeting people that I got to interview that were central to, to him, Rachman, his brother, and Khalila, really chiefly. Um, you know, they met when Khalila was 10 years old. She grew up in the Nation of Islam. Her parents were already members when she was born. And then Cassius Clay came. He was just discovering the Nation of Islam, came to her school, the University of Islam, to speak to the girls there. And that's when they first met. And, um, you know, years later, got married right at the point when Ali is going into exile. And so um, Khalila, you know, was with him at the bottom and through those years when she was with him touring the country, um, helping arrange those speeches, being a mom to their children, and really, you know, providing a lot of formidable wind in Ali's sails to sustain his belief that he could return to the ring. And, um, you know, it's, it's, we had a lot, have, you know, in an outtake form, a lot more of the bitterness and um, sorrow of how that marriage ended, which has everything to do with Ali's, Muhammad Ali's womanizing. Um, ultimately, uh, we took it out. It got to be kind of almost to a level of tawdriness that just wasn't serving the story well, but I didn't want to ignore it entirely. And when I was able to interview Hana Ali, one of Ali's daughters, and asked her to walk through the wives, and in doing so, she also introduced the children and said straight out about the two that Ali was uh, two children by women he was not married to. Felt like the way she did that, you kind of got that coupled with what Kalila does say in the film about how the marriage ended was enough. 
Well, it's very striking in Kalila's interview, you know, despite whatever, you know, hardship she went through in the marriage's end, her memories feel very fresh about the good times. I think that's another reason why I didn't want to overemphasize how it ended, because for her, that's not really what it's about. It's about how it was to be with him. And she remained, you know, at a distance, very close to him in heart. She said every time, she says in the film, that, you know, sometimes as Ali's Parkinson's um, took over more and more, it was hard to be with him, but at the same time, she'd fall in love all over again with him. And I was with her at the funeral um, in Louisville, and it was the same thing. Everyone was there. Ali wanted, you know, it's the first time I ever saw Veronica. Um, his first wife died many years ago, but the other three were there. All the kids were there. It was it was amazing. In fact, when I, Lani Ali, his widow, his last wife, was um, at the Ali Center after the funeral. Um, there was a reception, and she was kind of having a receiving line. And um, so I went up to pay my respects, and it turned out that the, the woman in front of me had a cell phone and handed Lonnie the phone, and it was President Obama right there. You know, the whole world was uh, mourning and celebrating Ali in Louisville. When you first approached members of Ali's family, what kind of coaxing did it take to get them to participate in this film? I, I have to imagine that they must get requests all the time, and th there must be a little bit of fatigue in telling their story. I, actually, I've done Q&As with Kalila, for example, where they asked her that. Why did you decide to do this film? And her straight-up answer is, because he asked me. <laughs> and, and actually, she hadn't been asked very often, certainly not about this period, nor had Rachman. I interviewed Minister Louis Farrakhan. He told me nobody had ever interviewed him about Muhammad Ali before. Nobody. And Gordon Davidson, the last surviving member of the Louisville sponsoring group of the people in the film, well, Bob Lipsight probably had done the most on Ali. But I intentionally picked people who were firsthand primary sources who were there with Ali for this period of his life, knowing that they really were underregarded and hadn't really been asked much at all. They, and so the only person on my shortlist initially who I didn't get was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I wanted him because he was involved in this famous meeting where black athletes came together ostensibly to convince Ali to go to Vietnam and came out of their meeting with him, convinced he was sincere and ended up supporting him. Jabbar didn't want to do it. His agent told me that he was making his own documentary film and his relationship with Ali would be in that. So then I went to Bill Russell. He wanted <laughs> ten dollars or $20,000. I, I don't have it. Um, but that led me to John Carlos, who... Um, in some ways, I mean, I love everybody that's in the film, but John Carlos brought a, a soul and a, a humanity to the film that, man, I'm, I'm super grateful for. So He's, describe who John Carlos is. John Carlos was um, is best known for um, his action in the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City after he won the Civil He was a track and field guy, and he and um, Tommy Smith won medals, and on the podium during the playing of the national anthem, they both raised black club-covered fists in that black power manner. And it was um, hugely striking and powerful and controversial. They paid dearly for that act uh, when they got back to this country, faced a lot of hatred. But, you know, like Ali, John Carlos has come out the other side in terms of, of history's judgment, and he's you know, now embraced as, a, as a, an American hero. One memorable interview in the film is Louis Farrakhan, 
the leader of the Nation of Islam. In this clip, Farrakhan talks about Ali's stand against Vietnam. You fight when you have something to fight for. But what are we fighting for? To tell me that I'm fighting for America and her way of life? What is her way of life? To come back home to injustice with all these medals on our chest? Hell no. Farrakhan is a divisive figure for his anti-Semitic and other extreme statements. I asked Bill why he wanted to include him. Again, in terms of, of the shortlist I had, I, I only, I didn't want, it's not hard to find people to talk about Muhammad Ali, you know, so it was a different kind of problem than I faced working on other films, you know, and I knew it could fall into a tribute. I probably, if I wanted to, could have gotten Oprah Winfrey or Bill Clinton or Billy Crystal and not to mention, you know, Bob Costas or commentators, historians. I, I really didn't want any of those people. I only wanted people who were there. And from a Nation of Islam perspective, which was a formative part of Ali's life, there was really nobody better to get than the current leader of the Nation of Islam, who who is Louis Farrakhan, and you know he came up with Ali and um, in in the nation. So, I it was the hardest interview to get, and the most intense interview I've ever done. He um, he was ready though, like I say, because he told me nobody had ever asked him about Ali, and, and I think he's great in the film. One of the things that you go into pretty deeply in the film is. Ali's relationship with Malcolm X. Malcolm X was, I believe, a key figure in bringing Ali into the Nation of Islam uh, before Malcolm X had had his split with Elijah Muhammad. It's not that long after. I mean, I think it was 1964, right, when when Ali comes into the Nation of Islam. Roughly, yeah. And um, then, and then that's it, when he takes the name. Yeah. And it's a year later that Malcolm X has split from the Nation of Islam and then is assassinated. You have uh, footage after Malcolm X's assassination of Ali being asked about it, and Ali really sides with the nation of, of Islam. Malcolm X and anybody else who attacks or talks about attacking that Elijah Muhammad will die. No man can oppose the message of Almighty God uh, verbally or physically and get away with it. Did Ali in his life ever modify his his view on, on Malcolm X? First off, the, I knew that I couldn't tell the story uh, responsibly without exploring Ali's relationship to Malcolm X. And every time we went into it from an editing standpoint, it sent us down this... We had a lot more of it in the film. You could, you could definitely make a film just on their relationship. Um, and we pulled back ultimately just to keep the film moving forward. But, um, and so unfortunately, you know, when you make choices like that, stuff gets left out, including the fact that Ali has said, had, has said that um, one of his few regrets in life is how he responded to Malcolm X's assassination um, and that he really wished he had not done that to the extent that he did and that, you know, found a way to to remain friends with him because Malcolm was so so important to Ali's life so he did and and it's it's not really there in the film I wish it was but I I do know that when I showed a fine cut of the film to Ali which I really wanted to do before it went out in the world 
um, and you know, he wasn't interviewed in my film because at that point he couldn't articulate verbally. He'd really lost his powers of speech due to the Parkinson's, but he could track entirely. And I watched him watch the film, and and he would respond viscerally to different scenes, including the fact that when that part of the film with Malcolm X came on, he bowed Ali bowed his head and put his hand over his brow and you know intentionally just seemed like you just couldn't watch that part Uh, unlike when Kalila came on he completely lit up and just this big smile you know jaw agape and that's who I'm I'm sitting next to Lonnie and in between Lonnie and Muhammad watching the watching them watch the film and I realized then what a what an intimate film it is from that perspective it's a it's you know it's pretty down home it's a family film in that sense and and that was also a cut in which we did still have Kalila going much deeper into the womanizing toward the end and at the very end I was with Lonnie and Muhammad and Lonnie's sister Marilyn who was Ali's full-time live-in caregiver and uh, his doctor and a couple other people and Lonnie said well I think you got to take that part out and her sister said, no, I think you got to leave that part in because it's true and the truth will set you free. And I, I'm in between them. I, I didn't say anything in the moment, but it's powerful. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how much interaction did you have with Ali in the making of this? Well, I got to meet him a few times on the Titanic uh, when he still could speak. That was 1990. And riff and joke and do magic tricks. He was really into he was a magician and a really, really good one. People, you know, not a lot of people know that, but it's funny too that um, because he was a, a, a Muslim and one of the tenets of Islam is to never deceive anyone, every time he did a trick, he would explain it. And that that explanation of the tricks got him kicked out of the magician's union <laughs> for doing that. So anyway. Um, you can't be a magician and a Muslim. Right, evidently. <laughs> not a union magician he so i got to hang out with him like that and just really experience the joy that he got from being with people that's uh, that's what i took away from that period is that he got as much from people as he gave to them he really it you know it was clear he didn't want to hang out with the two brit directors in their corner office he wanted to be down in the research pit with us where the most people were hanging out and um, that stayed with me, his humility in that sense. And so then, years later, when I got to making my own film, my first move was to meet with him and Lonnie to let them know that I wanted to do this. I went to their farm in Berrien Springs, Michigan, formerly owned by Al Capone. That's the Al Capone-Ali connection. <laughs> uh, and, um, and they got it right away. They understood that the film that I wanted to make hadn't been made. There hadn't been an in-depth exploration of this period. Um, they they were really, really supportive right off the bat. And Lonnie looked me straight in the eye and said, but it has to be an independently made film. I don't want my husband's legacy whitewashed. And what was and that was incredibly meaningful all by itself. But she said it in front of one of the brand managers for CKX. This is a company that Lonnie had just at that point sold 80% of the rights to Ali's image, likeness, and name. It was basically their last asset, right? The intellectual ether to this company for $50 million, but had retained 20%, so she had you know, a strong seat at the table. So when she told me in front of them that she wanted, wanted the film made independently, that, that was um, 
It's not something you often hear right. for, uh, when, when you're approaching people right. for, to do a biography. I want to go back to this transformation that takes place in the lifetime of Muhammad Ali from one of the most vilified people in the country to one of the most celebrated upon his death. What do you think the factors were that caused that 180-degree transformation in the American public? There's a lot of reasons, but I, I think partly his force of nature that, you know, when he was Cassius Clay and he was an Olympic gold medal winner, he had already achieved one level of success and fame. And when he then, you know, had his meteoric rise as a professional boxer as Cassius Clay and known at that point as a Louisville Lip and seen by many already as being obnoxious. <laughs> One of the clips in the film is of a newscaster trying to get then Cassius Clay to keep his mouth shut. And, it always, and another one, Jerry Lewis, tells him to shut up. It's amazing to me that these guys are interviewing someone and telling them not to speak. It just doesn't seem... So he's already on the radar of this country as Cassius Clay. And so, you know, I think that's one reason why the name change was so huge, that people knew who Cassius Clay was, and they didn't know who Muhammad Ali was. And so that was one level of reckoning that took, you know, depending on who you were, some people in the New York Times, years and years to acknowledge and print. Um, but they did, ultimately, because he didn't back down from that choice. Vietnam, when he refused to go, was another level of reckoning. And, and you know, people forget, hopefully the film does some justice to the fact that Ali was early on in his resistance to the war. That It wasn't like the anti-war movement had exploded across the country at that point. It was growing, but it wasn't what it became. And, and so I think because he was early on, he he you know paid an even harsher penalty than resistors did later on i mean not that he was the only one who paid a price plenty of people did but uh, so i think that he also was there out front of a turning tide you know the counterculture is emerging the black freedom struggle is exploding across the country people are challenging you know mainstream notions of order and and us hegemony in all sorts of ways all over the world and Ali is at the crosshairs of that, unlike, you know, almost anybody else really that I can think of in terms of the intersection between the, the black freedom struggle and, and the anti-Vietnam War protest movement. And so, you know, when he's out there on campuses, the tide is turning. And I think he realizes he has allies among white youth that he didn't know he had going in. And so, you know, the, all those things are happening in waves and simultaneous. And so, you know, it became... And all the while, he is who he is. He's, he's fearless, he's outspoken, he's righteous, he's principled, he's not wavering from his stance. It's impressive. And he was right. And, you know, history judged him as right. And so I think that, that all of those things ultimately um, led to that transformation in our response to him. As, we're, as we were, you know, questioning ourselves, we still are. You know, some of the same issues of Islamophobia and dissent and the United States' role in the world are still on the front burner, I hope. I think they are in this election year right now. And so, you know, I, I hope that the film can be a reminder of the fact that we're making history every day. You know, we're in a, a hugely formative historical moment right now and history is going to judge us all for the outcome of this and 
and it's on us to you know be on the right side of history as we as we move forward and and ali was you mentioned being at ali's funeral can you talk a little bit more about what that experience was like for me personally there was kind of three parts to it there was the media onslaught that you know my my phone literally like melted down from even before when he was on life support it started and it wasn't just media it was friends and people in the film and family i'll never have i can't imagine ever having another experience where so many people wanted to know how i felt about somebody dying so there was just on an immensely personal level there was that and from all over the world too not not just in the u.s and so when I got to Louisville at the Muhammad Ali Center, there was a media corral, literally like a, a circle where, you know, BBC had a booth here and Channel 5 in Chicago had one there and ABC and so forth. And I was just bouncing from one to the next. And, and it got to be wearying. And I realized while that was happening, the processional where Ali's body and, and, a, and a line of family were driving through the streets of Louisville. And I really wanted to see that. So at a certain point, I just split. And that, for me, was the most uh, emotional and, and memorable part. I ended up on a block on Broadway, right out on kind of on the edge of downtown, with this whole f- a few families, many little children who were, you know, kind of giddy. They didn't. And, and when the we were there for an hour or so before the cavalcade came, and when it did, the streets were packed, and the kids ran up on the curb and we're chanting Ali Bumaye Ali Bumaye and the adults are standing there much more mournful and sorrowful I mean the levels of emotion and the amount of love and people out on the streets was something I've never seen before and I don't know that I'll ever experience again so that that was that was kind of it for me but then there was the the funeral itself in the Yum Center and um, that was incredible too because you know, it's in a basketball arena, essentially, and um, they lit it so, I don't know who lit that auditorium there, but they did it really, really beautifully, soulfully, soulfully as I can imagine a basketball arena being lit. And it was so amazingly ecumenical. I mean, and this is the part that I've heard, while he, you know, planned the processional and the funeral service, I'm told, years before. And um, just hearing the the different religious leaders give their take on Ali, followed by family, followed by, you know, celebrity friends. Nobody really crossed over with anybody else. It made me realize all over again how many different ways Ali moved people's lives because it was like nobody said the same, nobody repeated anybody else. I couldn't, I couldn't believe that. And, and um, pretty much every speaker was, was tremendously moving. And you know, it's just a, a testament to my firm belief that we're better collectively because of Muhammad Ali's presence in our lives. We're better as a people, but but we got a long way to go, and I think he he always knew that, and it was another way of him challenging us by bringing this service together to be the best of who we can possibly be as a people. That's That's how I took it. I want to thank Bill Siegel for talking to me. We'll release two more episodes of Pure Nonfiction this month. Then after episode 17, we'll take a break as I gear up for the Toronto International Film Festival. We'll be back with season two in early September. On our next episode, I sit down with Alex Gibney, 
the most prolific feature documentary maker working today. His new film is called Zero Days, about the emergence of the Stuxnet virus and cyber warfare. Thanks to the Pure Nonfiction team, series producer Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer Kyle Murphy, marketing coordinator Sarah Modo, and executive producer Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. If you like what you've heard, the best way to support us is to subscribe on iTunes. Please tell your friends and spread the word on social media. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.